Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another edition. I want to talk about something I've never talked about before (laughs) on the podcast. I need to quit saying that, right? Which actually came through the inspiration of a colleague. Basically, it got me thinking. It got me thinking about the acronym KISS, Keep It Simple Stupid. I remember a client of mine whose estate and net worth was anything but simple. And uh, that was really his uh, mantra, what was important to him. And as I pondered that, I thought, you know, this is a catchy phrase. We've got a lot of rules of thumb and things that we say that are catchy phrases. And we often think we understand what they mean. Oftentimes when we really unpack them, we we don't really understand what they mean to everyone. We understand maybe what they mean to us, but that's not necessarily the universal interpretation. For example, with KISS, does that mean to make a complex topic understandable or not to make a simple communication overly complex, or not to oversimplify complex topics. Depending on how you view it, it it could mean any one of those. Oliver Wendell Holmes explained oversimplification in this manner. He said, for the For simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that, I would give you anything I have. Now, this idea of oversimplification was talked about by Tim Maurer, who is the author of Simple Money. And he has a uh, weekly email that he sends out called FLIP financial life planning. And in his March 11th edition, he talked about the danger of duality in financial planning and introduced the idea of oversimplification as tied with duality. Now, this really caught my attention because I first learned of duality uh, through a course that I took with um, Father Richard Rohr. Um, he is quite a, I'll call him a philosopher. He's written well over 20 something books, maybe, maybe even more now. And it is pretty profound. I first heard of him when he did, uh, conjoint teaching with Russ Hudson on the Enneagram. So, so Tim introduced the concept of dualism as associated with oversimplification. 
So let's talk about this thing called duality. I think I'll define duality as splitting something into two opposed or contrasted aspects. So basically, dualism or duality is the state of being divided and polarized. So this is important because we're not talking about two uh, synergistic ideas or camps. We're talking about duality being two very different, very opposed, polarized concepts. Now, does this sound familiar to you? I think uh, dualism or polarization is rampant in our country today, rampant in the level of politics. I would suggest it's been rampant in the um, sphere of religion for a long time and rampant in money. And this was the interesting thing that uh, Tim brought into the idea of, of dualism, uh, duality, that I had been exposed to because I had studied this, but I never, I never really developed or tied in the area of money in the way that Tim did, which really inspired me. Obviously, I'm doing a podcast on it. So when it comes to making financial decisions, duality can really produce some very costly mistakes. So, and, and I've talked about polarization a lot in the frame, in the lens of IFS, right? Internal family systems. When we are with that uh, modality of psychology, when we're working with our parts, various parts of ourselves, how common is it to say, I have one part of me that wants to save and another part of me that wants to spend. I have one part of me that wants to take a new job. I have another part of me that doesn't. And on and on it can go uh, into infinity. So that's, that's how duality shows up in our financial thinking. And duality, polarization show up all the time, all the time with uh, doing work on ourselves. So what we find is when we look at duality in applying it to uh, finances, we find that duality can uh, be incredibly costly. And making costly financial mistakes is pretty common, right? Why? Well, our brains love oversimplification. <clears throat> I mean, duality is black and white, right? In, uh, in recovery, in the recovery circle, recovery movement, you often hear about this referred to as either or thinking. Either something is 100% this way or it's 100% that way. That's duality. And it's also very simple, right? It's black and white. There's no gray. Black and white is very simple. So I'd like to suggest this, that our brains love oversimplification. Daniel Kahneman, that I have talked about, on the podcast. He's a Nobel Prize winner, did a lot of research on how we make decisions. And 
he basically found that we make most of our decision, decisions in our brain's Olympic system, which is all about speed and ease of a decision. It's also called the emotional brain uh, or the mid middle brain. So this particular section of our brain really loves duality, loves to keep things simple, really loathes complexity, non-duality. Non-duality, of course, is the opposite of duality. Because all of this requires a lot of thinking, and thinking is hard work. I mean, seriously, I'm not being facetious. The hard work of thinking happens primarily in the cerebral cortex of our brains. Now, you might think, well, then thinking is always good. No. <laughs> you know, that in itself is maybe a duality, right? Either thinking's bad or thinking's good. A thinking is not so good if a, uh, a Mack truck is bearing down on you and you're in the middle of the road. You don't want to think about all of the options and possibilities and really analyze this speeding vehicle coming at you because you probably aren't going to survive that amount of hard work in thinking. Your limbic brain is going to take over and make a decision in a nanosecond. <clears throat> so there's a time for thinking. There's a time for letting the limbic brain work. <clears throat> but generally speaking, our limbic systems really love simplification. I mean, that's the whole basis of this podcast, right, is that the majority, I say 90% of all financial decisions are made in the, in the limbic system, made emotionally. So uh, one quote that I really liked that Tim brought up was that one of the chief methods of oversimplification is seen in our addiction to duality. So he, he referred to this as an addiction. Addiction, this or that, one or the other, my way or the highway, or in the words of Clash, and I don't know who Clash is, Tim does, I think Clash must be a musician, but I do recognize this statement, should I stay or should I go? Uh, so I do think that's a song. <laughs> I, I, I relate to uh, Kenny Rogers, right? Kenny Rogers was a country singer back in the day for all of those of you that don't, don't know who Kenny Rogers is. And he had a song, No When to Hold Them and No When to Fold Them. So I think it's along the same concept, just a different generation. So I'm saying all of this to say that financial decisions and duality go hand in hand. And this is something that I just have never brought specifically into this arena. Uh, I've talked about duality a lot, but duality and non-duality are kind of big concepts in uh, the contemplative movement, in uh, a lot of personal growth and introspection. And here it is showing up, of course, in money. So, um, you know, a person can be talking about, well, should I cut my spending? Or should I increase my income? Which one? Should I spend for this item or should I save that money? 
Should I borrow and buy a new car or keep my old beater? Uh, this is, uh, this is simpler, similar to money scripts. We say that every money script is partially true and partially false, depending on the context. And you have heard me teach forever that there's always a third option in a money script. When we're rescripting money scripts, there's always a third option. For example, money script that says, which is mine, I've talked about this before, that you've got to work hard to make money. Well, that is a, that is uh, a duality because the other side of that, if you, if you don't work hard, you won't work much, you won't earn money. Okay. So it's either or, isn't it? But is it possible to work hard and not get money? Yes. So we have three things here. Work hard, get money. Don't work hard, don't get money. Work hard, don't get money. A fourth one, is it possible to not work and get money? Absolutely. So there we have four possible outcomes to what seemed to be a duality, what to what seemed to be either you do work and get it or you don't work and don't get it. Now, let's take the idea of uh, uh, one of the things I just mentioned, should I borrow and buy a new car or should I keep my old beater? Okay. There's a lot of options to this. It's not either or. You could save an amount that's equal to the monthly payments on a new car and wait. So that isn't borrowing today to buy it. And that isn't getting rid of it today. It's putting in a third possibility into, into the mix, which is I could take what I would make, the payment that I would make on a loan to get a new car and just start saving it. And another option is I could do that until the old car really fell apart. And of course, there's always that decision point with an older car is when is it getting more expensive to keep it than that amount would be into a invested in a new car. I would suggest as a society, we probably typically get rid of cars before we really need to, uh, to get rid of them. And I think that has a lot to do with money scripts. It has lots to do with the influence of the car manufacturers that of course they would suggest you buy a new car every year. I mean, it's not feasible, but my point is that would be more profitable, right? Um, another thing you could do rather than buy a new car, you could buy a three-year-old car or a two-year-old car, one-year-old car, four-year-old car, five-year-old car. Um, Sometimes it's possible to buy three-year-old cars with uh, such low mileage. It's like they were just driven off the lot a few months ago. I think, I think my wife told me that my mother-in-law owns a car that is, gee, I think it's 10 years old with 8,000 miles. Those things are out there. Um, another option to this as well, 
you could buy a used car with only the cash that you have and not borrow, right? Should I borrow and buy a new car? No, how about not borrowing and buying a used car that you can pay 100% cash with? And um, of course, you could sell the old car. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of schemes now where you rent a car. You can rent a car out. Maybe you could keep the old car and rent it out. And within maybe a few months, earn more than what you could have sold it for. All of these could be options. Um, another option over, do I buy a new car or do I keep the old car? Would be the, to reduce the use of the current car. Um, you could keep the car, use it uh, just on occasions where you absolutely needed a car. Maybe you're in a location. Not too long ago, I went to uh, New York City. Well, if you're living in Manhattan, there's not a whole big need for a car. But in many other places, you could be in a proximity where you could start walking more, biking more. Um, in my area, it's really possible to bike a whole lot more during the uh, spring, summer, and fall. So that's an option. Something else you could do is to have a complete diagnostic done on the current car to see if the assumptions that I need to sell this car are correct. You know, maybe it has 150,000 miles. Um, well, there are cars today that are very capable of going 250, 300,000 miles that we can uh, just have a, a money script that you need to get a new car after so many thousands of miles. Uh, this would make sense, especially for those of us that have been around a little while when back in the day cars were not made um, to last as long. Uh, the abuse they took was more in a car with 75,000 was a lot of miles where today it's much, much different. You could sell your current car and lease a car long-term. Now, this is very possible. So you don't have to buy a car. Now, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of this and all the financial decisions, but it's another option. You could sell your current car and lease a car short-term. What's that look like? Well, that's a car rental company. Or you can uh, you can lease a renter rack for less money. You could sell your current car and use rideshare services like Uber and Lyft or carpool or public transport if you live in an area like that. And if you don't live in an area like that, another option would be to move to an area like that. So my whole point here is that when we're presented with only two choices, two options, two polarizations, that is a financial red flag. I have not run into a money script that's 100% true or 100% false, and I haven't run into a money script that doesn't have at least three variations. So I would like to submit to you to just about any situation there are almost always, and I'm not going to say always, 
because oftentimes that's kind of a dualistic thinking in itself, right? There's only one or there's three decisions all the time. So I'm going to say there are almost always a third choice and even more. I quite frankly usually find more than three choices. I've run into situations where it seems to be really hard at first to find that third option. But once I kind of lubricate my brain a little bit and start thinking, or especially if I'm working with a group of, uh, of people, you know, one, two, three others, that becomes a lot of easy, a lot easier because I can get very myoptic, right? Emotionally myoptic. And interesting enough, a lot of philosophers throughout the ages have contended that there's no such thing as duality. Now, you can get into whether that statement is dualistic in itself, but um, I'm going to just pre present it that they would say duality just probably doesn't su suggest because every, every potential uh, decision will have three options, at least three options. Uh, some refer to this as the law of three. Um, and back to my um, time with uh, Richard Rohr in his school, he once said, you can't choose sides with three. Now think about that. Uh, yeah, I was almost raised to think, for example, if a uh, couple was getting divorced, you had to take sides. You had to be on one side or the other. Um, in our current political position, one party or the other, one side or the other. But when you have three sides, it's hard to choose opposing sides. So uh, I, I find that to be interesting and it, it may even be more difficult with four, five, six, eight sides. So I'm going to suggest that the path to financial well-being often begins when we realize the contradictions and the polarities within us. I have said this many times on the podcast that money scripts are often inherently polarized and conflicted. I deserve money. I don't deserve money. Very normal money scripts. And when we begin to bring awareness, usually we're not even aware of these polarized money scripts. And as we become aware, we're probably thinking, something's wrong with me. How can I possibly believe two opposite things? But when we really begin to, to bring awareness and a greater sense of consciousness to the contradictions within us, the fog can begin to dissipate as we start working with these uh, parts of ourselves, these polarities, and find out that there often is another path or several paths to, um, to move this forward. In doing uh, financial therapy with my clients, I had just been amazed at the 
collaboration, the collaborative solutions that two parts of themselves have come together to work out to where each part gets uh, what they were after. And we've talked a lot about that. Every part of ourselves has a good intention. There's a good intention. No matter how illogical the behavior that that part of ourselves may have, the intention is good. So as we begin to really listen, the parts of ourselves begin to listen to the intents of those other parts that want to spend or don't want to spend. Uh, the potential solutions that can come up are just eloquent. In many cases, I remember going, gee, <laughs> I'm a financial planner that has some expertise in this area, and I wouldn't have thought of that. So if we're going to master, if we're going to increase, if we're going to create financial well-being, we really need to master non-dual thinking. So uh, non-dual thinking is desperately needed in our world today. It's needed not only in the area of personal finance, but it's needed in religion and it's needed in politics. We've been basically trained. Uh, we all have PhDs in dual dualistic thinking. And education, in some ways, has dug a deeper dualistic hole for us. Um, someone says something and we respond with our counter-argument. Well, let me be play the devil's advocate. And we, we can just become so invested in our own opinion, in confirmation bias, and I've spoken about that before, you know, our fear of failure, our fear of being wrong, that we can't see the bigger picture. Our egos, those parts of ourselves that just fear being wrong, that that means there's something wrong with us, can have a hard time admitting I was wrong. So embracing non-duality in all of our decisions and in our worldviews is going to begin the work of transformation. It's going to begin the work of expanding and creating and establishing, increasing emotional uh, physical and financial well-being. So thanks so much for joining me. Take care. See you next week. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.